0: Hello
1: and welcome to The Wire. Your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the
2: show... I think this year it is even more poignant and even more meaningful because of the obvious of what has happened in Gaza. On Tuesday, the eve
1: of United Nations International Day of Solidarity for Palestinian people, members of Adelaide joined on the steps of SA's Parliament House in a vigil of words and prayers. The message, one of contemplative solidarity. Also, environmental defenders gathered to demand the New South Wales government and federal government speed up the transition to renewables and put an end to fossil fuel projects. So what does a coal miner have to say about environmental impact following four decades in the coal mining industry.
3: And later in the show... In addition to that national code, there is the proposed new National Student Ombudsman and that would give students a viable complaint process and complaints handling body to go
1: to. Recent data shows 275 sexual assaults per week occur within a university context but an advocate from End Rape on Campus says the draft action plan addressing gender-based violence in higher education released last week could have the potential to be transformative to students and victim survivors. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcast. Casting Foundation. To begin, today is the first day of the major international climate summit, COP28. World leaders will meet in Dubai to discuss how to reduce emissions. Today, Australia's Energy Minister Chris Bowen delivered his annual climate report in Parliament. He says Australia is within striking distance of reaching our 2030 target of a 43% reduction in emissions. But he says there is still a long road ahead and more needs to be done. Transport is Australia's second largest source of emissions and the fastest growing. Electric Vehicles Council CEO, Bihar Jafari, says switching to EVs and reducing emissions from petrol vehicles must be a key pillar of the world's transition to net zero. He spoke to political correspondent for National Radio News and the community radio network, Amanda Kopp.
4: Today is the International Climate Conference COP28, the first day it starts today, where does Australia sit when it comes to transport emissions specifically and electric vehicles policy at the moment? Are, are we meeting our goals when it comes to those things?
5: So Australia's emissions reduction targets for 2030 are around 43% reduction. Um so far every year transport emissions are continuing to go up. So very far we're very far away from meeting a, you know, an equal target of a 43% reduction in transports. Uh, it's other sectors needing to do the heavy lifting to make up for the fact that not only are we not cutting emissions, emissions are actually going up uh, in transport. It's the fastest growing sector. And at this rate, by 2030, it's expected to be our largest source of emissions as a nation as well.
4: And why are they going up?
5: In, in Australia, there are some pretty fundamental pieces of policies and regulations that haven't been brought into effect. The key one federal government's working on right now is called a fuel efficiency standard. These are standards that everyone else in the developed world has. They apply to the sale of new cars into your market. And by Australia not having them, some car companies have been very clear that Australians are being treated as a dumping ground for more inefficient vehicles than the like-for-like vehicle that you can get overseas. So what that looks like today is the average driver in Australia, the average motorist is driving a car that needs that uh, 20% more fuel than a similar car would in the USA. So if people are paying around $5,000 a year in petrol costs, that would be $1,000 cheaper if we just had the same type of standards as those that already exist in the USA, which is a country that has pretty poor standards compared to other places like Europe. And uh, while the federal government's developing these fuel efficiency standards, today the government's climate statement makes it very clear that Australia won't meet it's twenty thirty targets until these, if these standards are not brought into place really quite immediately, they need to start doing their job right away.
4: COP28 is often a place uh, where governments will come to the table with new policies, with new goals when it comes to emissions reductions. You've mentioned one there with fuel efficiency standards, but what should the government be doing to increase the take-up of EVs specifically here in Australia?
5: There are a few really key measures. I mean, We've said a few times in the past that Australia is behind a lot of comparable countries around the world. So one of the benefits of being behind is we know what works because we can look at the people in front of us. And what we have had in a federal respect and in some states is some financial incentives to help encourage people. If you're going to go buy a new car, buy an electric one rather than a petrol and diesel one, that continued investment in rolling out charging infrastructure across the country, So, a few schemes that are already underway, as I said, the sort of key missing piece of the puzzle uh, are these fuel efficiency standards as well. Really, ideally, what you want is all of them working in concert together.
4: Um, Now, I think, at least just from talking to various people in my life, there is still some hesitancy for people buying electric vehicles. You know, often people have range anxiety. Often the cost is too high. Um, But from your perspective, why should people be driving EVs or why should people be buying EVs?
5: I think people's concerns around range certainly comes up a lot. There's something I hear about several times a day. Um, I think the first good message that I can tell people is that in our experience, people are most worried about the range of their batteries and where they're going to recharge it in the weeks before they buy an electric vehicle. And once they own one, they actually see that you don't really need to think twice about it. There, it is a pretty natural logical solution. People think that there's going to be an additional hassle with recharging your car with an electric car. And then they very quickly, actually, it's actually more convenient because you get to recharge as your car sits there overnight. So you don't need to go to go to a petrol station. That concern people are feeling isn't unreasonable, this is something new, and like every time something is new, uh, you know, you're know you going to want that extra assurance. So do tell people, go ahead and do the research on when, where public charging stations are. In the meantime, there are a few other things, like needing more options of electric vehicles for people to choose from, whether that's at lower prices or just different ones, you know, people have different tastes. And the good news for us there is that we're not sitting around waiting for people to invent those cars. They already exist. Our big challenge in Australia is we need to convince these companies to put them on ships and bring them here and make them available to Australian consumers. And that's the part that's in our hands.
1: Electric Vehicles Council CEO, Bihar Jafari, speaking with Amanda Kopp.
4: My great grandma was born. She was born in the beautiful city of Haifa in Palestine. Same as Palestine, Haifa was beautiful.
1: People clutching candles lined the steps of South Australia's Parliament House on Tuesday night, the eve of the United Nations International Day of Solidarity for Palestinian people. As many gathered in an outpouring of grief to share words and prayers, the vigil delivered a clear message, one of contemplative unity for people in Palestine and Gaza. November 29 marks the anniversary of the General Assembly's endorsement of the 1947 Partition Resolution, which authorised two states, Israel and Palestine. On this day, the United Nations urges the international community to consider the unresolve of Palestine, renewing calls for their rights to freedom, sovereignty and independence from Israeli occupation. Light MP Tony Piccolo, who attended the vigil, said the state government was set to put a motion of solidarity for the Palestinian people to the South Australian House of Assembly.
5: Well, I think the first thing the the communities want want to know that we actually are listening and, and hear their grief. And so tomorrow there'll be a motion moved in state parliament. It'll be the first parliament in Australia to move a motion at this time and hopefully they'll get passed and just convey to the Palestinian community we need to engage, we need to talk and we need to make sure they understand that we will we'll stand up for them. I think it's important that we find ways to last in peace. Ultimately we have to find peace and a just peace for, for the Middle East for both the Israelis and the Palestinians. All this conflict has done has made things worse, created more trauma, radicalised people both in Israel and Palestine. What world leaders need to do is find words and processes to bring a lasting peace to the area.
1: Australian Friends of Palestine Association Chairperson Krista Christaki said events like the vigil are important to bring members of the community together.
2: AFOPA has been advocating for justice and for a free Palestine since 2004. Along the way, we've had many events to both support Palestinians in a free Palestine, also to educate the public and inform the public about the reality of Palestine. It was very important at this moment to bring together people from all walks of life to share the enormous amount of grief that is in the community with each other and to be able to mourn the victims of the Israeli massacres in Gaza. Tomorrow is the United Nations International
1: Day of Solidarity of Palestinian People. What does that mean at this
2: time? The International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian People was inaugurated by the UN in 1977 in recognition of the plight of the Palestinians with the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. I think this year it is even more poignant and even more meaningful because of the obvious of what has happened in Gaza, the war on people in Gaza by Israel.
1: And what do you need the state government to do at this point?
2: I think what we heard loud and clear is that there is an imbalance between both the Australian government and the state government support of Israel and Palestine. The lighting up of Parliament House in Israeli colours, no one is objecting to that. But the people here tonight and the Palestinian community all around Australia and in South Australia, and not only the Palestinian community, look around, people from all walks of life, all ages, want to see that our governments are not biased towards Israel. They want to know that a Palestinian life, the life of a Palestinian child, is equal to the life of an Israeli child, an Israeli woman, or any other child in the world, a child in Australia. What people are asking for is leadership. And this discourse on balance is just ridiculous. You have an occupier and an occupied. There is no symmetry there. There is no balance. Fighting a people who are living under occupation in an apartheid state. There is no equivalency there. And this call for balance, we have to support both, is just, to me, unbelievable. What we've seen in the last uh, seven weeks in the Australian Friends of Palestine, our premises in Frame Street, is an enormous outpouring of support for Palestine and for us as an association I have honestly never seen anything like this in our 10 15 years that you know we've had that shop front uh, my name is Lulu and why did you come here tonight you
1: know like I get a bus for three hours just to attend to these events because I've been knowing that Palestinians really need our voice right now and social
3: medias really make a big difference. To the uh, the whole thing. Um, my name is Fatima. So it's to show our solidarity sur- sur- to Palestinians, which kill from uh, Israeli military. It's really sad, and it's like um, genocide for them because it's not a war. It's the war is apple to apple, like military with military. But this is military with innocent special, uh, civ- s- civilians. Here, I would like to. Uh, Address my solidarity and my sadness and support them.
1: Lulu and Fatima speaking with The Wire at the recent vigil by Australian Friends of Palestine Association. has been termed as one of the biggest climate protests in the nation's history, took place in Newcastle this week. Environmental defenders gathered to demand the New South Wales government and federal government speed up the transition from fossil fuel projects to renewables. The protest, organised by a group, Rising Tide, also wants the export of coal to finish. Howard Grant is a coal mine worker and following four decades in the industry, says the change needs to happen now. The WISE contributor from River FM, Sean O'Shaughnessy, started asking Howard how he ended up speaking at the anti-coal rally.
6: Uh, look, it's it's been an interesting journey, but um, uh, yeah, look, I grew up in the Illawarra, and as a kid, surfing on those beaches and riding out to the rainforest on the Illawarra escarpment, you know, that was a, a massive part of my life. And so, you know, that's my background, that sort of underpins who I am, and then sort of in around about 1981, you know, I left school, and I had, you know, the message for me was you had to get a job, and, and that's what I did. I ended up getting a job at uh, Appham Colliery, which is uh, where I started my career at Appin Colliery uh, in 1981, 43 years ago. Uh,
0: a lot of blokes uh, in the Illawarra, that's what they did. They got, got out of school and into the collieries. Uh, they're, uh, they're a pretty straight shooting bunch. What do, what do your coal mining mates think about what you're
6: saying about coal now? Uh, look it's an interesting question it's it's been a journey for me, and initially you know five years when I've become sensitive to and aware of the need for change, you know a lot of guys sort of piled on my opinion if ever I, I spoke or would become aware of my thoughts they sort of were pretty reactive it was it was a bit harsh, but look the good news is that more miners these days are now aware of the, the broader need for change. I think we're all aware we all see the impacts of climate change around us. Um, you know, the 1920 fires, the rain, the intensity of the rain, which is gouging out our rivers and creeks. I think everyone's becoming aware of the impacts of burning fossil fuel.
0: What do you think the solution is then, you know, balancing the interests of the whole world and the, and the, the climate and the, the ecologies that are threatened by the, uh, the, the the climate emergency and and those miners...
6: Yeah, and and that's what I like to speak to. You know, I'm a coal miner. I've been in the industry 43 years. I absolutely understand my ob- obligations to mine workers, and and looking for a practical solution to all of this. At the end of the day, that solution is part of that solution is is no new fossil fuel projects. It's a bit of a nuanced message because it gets drowned out in this idea that we want to shut an industry down overnight. And that's what I want to try and communicate. It's not about shutting down an industry. It's about a transition. And, and that part of that is is no new fossil fuel projects. So coal mines, projects that are already open are on foot. Um, you know, look, a coal mine has a life of 30 years. And so I believe that there's plenty of projects already open on foot to support coal miners. I've only ever been a coal mine. It's the only thing I know what to do understand their anxiety but I, I tend to have, I'm confident there's projects already happening that will support those families, those people into the future in this transition. Mm. So
0: what are we calling for then? What's the what's that transition going to look like for those coal miners? What do you think the, the, how, how is that going to be done?
6: It's an absolutely good question and the most relevant question for today for mine workers today and my my sort of I can't speak for everything there but look at the end of the day let's be honest with mine workers let's let's as mine workers let's be a part of that conversation let's broaden our outlook and our thinking and the information we get so that we can make decisions for ourselves and for our families and adapt to those changing circumstances which are going to take place over you know what time frame that's the question is it is it five years is it 10 years. I don't know the answer to that, but there is time and, and we need to make ourselves aware of the circumstances and be a part of the conversation.
0: So you, you were uh, speaking about the parts per million in the atmosphere of CO2 and, and you started out as a coal miner and it was 300 parts per million. You were doing testing around the mines, is that right? And you found the, 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 the alarming levels. Is that, is that one of the things that triggered you?
6: Um, not quite that, but look, it was part of my job that I had every day continuously more or less I had to be aware of the gas levels of different gases in the mine which included CO2 and methane. I was acutely aware of the level of CO2 in the atmosphere at the time of my employment which was 300 parts per million. It was part of my job I was trained to detect that gas and look at the end of the day it wasn't that Which made me sensitive to the issue. It was an international broadcast which told me that the level had, was now 420 parts per million, which totally surprised me because my indoctrination, my exposure to the industry was it was 300. So I was totally surprised at that change. And it sort of made me a bit angry that, you know, the people that I relied upon to keep me informed, which was the government hadn't kept me informed of this change
1: protester and coal mine worker Howard Grant speaking with River FM's
6: Sean O'Shaughnessy.
1: Last week, Federal Education Minister Jason Clare released the draft action plan addressing gender-based violence in higher education. Our Watch CEO Patty Kinnisley said the plan outlines the immediate actions like improving support for victim survivors while working to transform culture that allows violence to occur. The draft plan follows persistent calls from advocates as incidences of sexual violence in university spaces saw an increase from 215 per week in 2017 to 275 per week in 2021. Speaking with The Wire in July, End Rape on Campus Director Shana Brebner discussed an open letter calling on the government for major change in addressing growing incidences of sexual violence at universities. So what potentials could this proposed plan offer? Shana has more.
3: We think the plan has the potential to be transformative for students and victim survivors and that it will finally disrupt the systems that have allowed universities and residences to push this issue under the rug for decades. And what's the main message
1: that you think has come out of the draft plan?
3: For me, the really key message and the most important part of this entire process has been the action plan shows us that the government, the Department of Education, they're listening and they believe survivors and that's huge. The overarching message is that university responses have not been good enough and that it's time for unis to do better.
1: When we last spoke, many advocates, including your organization, were calling for an independent oversight body to improve accountability and transparency. Accountability has been included in the draft action plan. How much of a game changer could this be?
3: The accountability piece for me is really the key thing of what we were looking for in the action plan. It's been very, very apparent that the current federal education regulator, higher education regulator in Texas, has completely failed. They've been just an absolute dismal failure when it comes to holding providers accountable for student safety. To see these new mechanisms built into the proposed plan is the thing we need. We know that universities will not act unless they're made to.
1: What are some of the other key points that have been proposed in this draft action plan? If you could take us through a couple of those.
3: There are really three key areas that we see in the action plan, which is the introduction of a national code that would actually put in place rules for universities and residences around providing evidence-based prevention and best practice responses to students who do disclose or report an instance of sexual violence. In addition to that national code, there is the proposed new national student ombudsman, and that would give students a viable complaints process and complaints handling body to go to, not only if they have an issue related to sexual or gender-based violence, but any kind of concern they have about their higher education provider. And that's massive, because right now the higher education regulator has said that they don't accept complaints from students. So in terms
1: of a national code and a a new national ombudsman, what could this approach offer in terms of continuity and ensuring response and action across the board?
3: What it could offer is the chance for all students to have the same experience when it comes to prevention efforts. We've seen really uneven approaches to prevention education across the higher education sector. And we've seen really uneven approaches to response when students are going to report an incident of sexual violence. This plan, having a federal approach, means that it would no longer be a postcode lottery for students. Where you attend university would no longer determine the level of response that you get.
1: It became apparent that the Change the Course report of 2017 revealed that 215 people per week at that time were experiencing sexual assault in university settings. The 2021 National Student Safety Survey showed 275 assaults per week on campus within a uni context. Just how concerning is the problem right now?
3: It's hugely concerning, and what we're seeing on university campuses at the moment are students who have missed out on certain parts of their education because of the pandemic lockdowns, and part of that education was violence prevention education, a respectful relationship with education. So we have these cohorts of students moving into our university communities who have missed out on that altogether, and that's something that just we haven't seen the gap addressed, and we need to desperately.
1: In terms of the the possible solutions that this this draft action plan could offer, do you think those solutions will be adequate moving into the future?
3: We think they will be, provided this plan is implemented in full. It can't be something that is implemented in in any sort of piecemeal way. Each part of this plan interacts with other parts. None of them will do what they need to do unless the plan is implemented in full.
1: What are some of the main comments that you've heard about this proposed draft action plan from the community of student safety advocates?
3: What we've seen is just an enormous amount of relief because students have been advocating to have this issue addressed for decades. We just haven't ever been able to get it across the line. And student safety advocates have felt incredibly heard and have had their input valued throughout this entire process. And Rapon
1: Campus Director Shana Brebner speaking with The Wire. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3 Z in NAM, Melbourne, 4 Z and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.